Thank you very much for this very nice introduction. I'm very pleased to be here tonight, and uh, it's my second time in Oxford. The first time was uh, as a member of a jury with Professor Van Loo, so. And, uh, and this time it's to give this conference to a to on a topic which is very dear to my heart and what I do, and I really feel that uh, dealing with water law is an important issue, uh, especially if we look at the prospects in terms of water consumption uh, in the next decades. I would like first to uh, thank the School of Geography and the Environment for inviting me, and I would also address special thanks to Dr. Anna Russell. We met in Geneva, and uh, when I received her invitation, I was very touched that she remembered me, and uh, I accepted with great pleasure uh, to give this conference. So I will speak, uh, the topic is fresh water and international law, universal and regional perspectives. I hope it's not going to be too abstract for those who are dealing with practical issues in terms of water management. But what I'd like to do with you tonight is to sort of draw, to identify some of the characteristics of the development of international uh, water law, the law applicable to international freshwater resources or international water law, as we call it also. As we know, this is a corpus of norms which emerged at the beginning of the 19th century. And I'll come back to that. And it has matured over the two past centuries. But what is interesting is that in the three last decades, uh, this corpus of norms has experienced considerable changes. And what I'd like to do is to identify and deal with some of the characteristics of these changes which have taken place in the last 30 years. More especially, what I'd like to do is to look at the interplay of norms adopted at the universal, regional, and basin level. I'd like to look at these different levels because it seems, it appears to me that important instruments have been adopted at each level. And what is interesting is that when you look at these different levels, you get a systemic perspective of the development of international water law. And what I'd like to do is to identify some of the characteristics of this systemic perspective. So my presentation will uh, have two principal parts. The first one, I will deal with instruments adopted at the universal level. And I'll look at some of the characteristics of the universal instruments. I will mostly speak of the 97 convention on the law of non-navigational users of international water courses. But I will also deal partly with the uh, draft articles on the law of transboundary aquifers, which have just been adopted by the International Law Commission. Both instruments have their value on, as being comprehensive codifications of general norms of universal application. And at the same time, they have another role, which is also very important, which I'm going to stress, that they are guiding instruments for treaties which find application on the regional and basin level. So comprehensive codification at the universal level, but also guiding instruments for developing instruments at the regional and basin level. So that would be the first part, and I will look at the interactions of these universal instruments with regional and basin instruments. The second part, I will look at the developments from the angle of regional conventions and instruments and uh, instruments adopted at the basin level. And what is true, and I will go more in detail about that, is that when you look at the content of basin instruments, instruments adopted at the basin level, you realize that the, uh, the content is more extensive. 
that might be due to the number of parties. There are less parties to these types of instruments, but very often the, st the states are going to be willing to negotiate instruments with more stringent norms. And that is something which we're going to be looking at. For example, when we look at the development of the, pro of the protection of international environmental law, it's quite interesting to see that at the regional level and at the basin level, states have been much more forward-looking in terms of environmental protection. And uh, in a third part, and as concluding remark, I will look from different legal angle, uh, a different legal angle at the interplay between universal, regional, and basin instruments. And my viewpoint is that all these instruments should be read together. There should be harmonization between all levels in terms of legal instruments dealing with water courses. And uh, what I mean by that is that there should not be any clinical isolation when we understand and when we interpret a, a specific instrument. We have to look at these instruments in the context of uh, international water law, and that's the systemic approach in terms of interpretation and application of the water agreements. And I'll come back to that. So the first part, the development of international water law, the interaction between universality and particularism. As I said, in the last three decades, the law of fresh water has gone through significant developments. Under the aegis of the United Nations, important instruments such as the 97 Convention and the draft articles on international aquifers, have been adopted. So that's one thing to be taken into consideration. But when we look at the negotiation process within the International Law Commission and afterwards, it appears that states are very reluctant to adopt multilateral treaties at the universal level dealing with international waters. There is great reluctance about it, and I will come back to that later on. So before I start and look at this universal and uh, universal instruments and the interaction between these instruments and the others, what I'd like to do is to sort of <coughs> try to identify the instruments I'm referring to when I'm speaking of universal instruments. What is interesting, and I'd like to put this discussion in a historical context, the development of international law, as I said, started at the beginning of the 19th century. And in fact, the main focus of states when they were dealing with international waters was navigation. Navigation was the main, the most important use of international water courses. And I think that we have also to look at the historical developments of that time for colonial purposes, for trade purposes. State had the interest of developing the and ensuring freedom of navigation because that's, that was a means of acceding to new territories and that, that was also a means for uh, having trade relationships with others. Now, what is to be considered is that the freedom of navigation is an important, it's a principle of international law, of universal value, but you don't have any instrument adopted at the universal level which is clarifying the statut status of this principle. So that's one thing, and we'll put aside the, the question of navigation. Now, with the 20th century and the beginning of the 20th century, navigation appeared to be, was important, and is still important for a lot of countries and regions in the world. But especially after the First World War, what appeared was that there were other uses which were also very important when people were looking at international water courses or other sources of water, 
they started to realize that they needed to have some clarification about the law applicable to these uses. And it's interesting to note that under the aegis of the League of Nations, there was an attempt to clarify the rules in terms of the users of international water courses. And in fact, the states at that time adopted a multilateral treaty, universal, uh, which is the 1923 convention relating to the development of hydroelectric power affecting more than one state. And it dealt with, in fact, water installations, which, had, uh, which uh, several states had a, an interest in. But, so that was the first attempt to negotiate an international, a multilateral treaty, but it remained an exception. Because then the states were not willing to adopt other multilateral treaties, universal treaties. And in the course of the 20th centuries, with the decolonization process, it appeared more and more that there were important uses of waters and there was still a need to clarify the rules of the game. When we think of these other uses, it's irrigation, which is one of the most important uses of international water courses, the production of hydroelectric energy, industrial uses or health uses or uh, individual uses. And it's interesting to note that because there was a need for clarifying the rule of the game, it's a non-governmental organization, the International Law Association, which attempt to do the first codifications of the rules. And those are the famous 1966 Helsinki rules that people often refer to. But we have to remember that although they are codifying a lot of the principles applicable in terms of international waters management, they, are, they have been adopted by individuals gathered in a non-governmental organization, legal organization. And because of the status of this organization and because there was a political momentum for clarifying further the status of norms applicable to international water courses, it was decided at the, within the United Nations in 1970 to ask the United Nations Law Commission, which is a subsidiary body of the General Assembly, to attempt to codify the rules with respect to the users of international water courses, others than navigation. And it took three decades to the International Commission to clarify these rules and to codify these rules. There were the second reading of these rules negotiated at an expert level within the International Commission with some comments made by states. The second reading was, uh, took place uh, and, was, uh, and the outcome was adopted in 1994. And then there was a decision to have an international conference to adopt a convention dealing with the uses other than, than navigation. And that's the 97 convention. So it took 30 years for the states, uh, for, for the members of the International Commission, and then for the, for, for the states, uh, it, was more it was more quick, but it was, it, it, in fact, all the reluctances, you could find them in the work of the International Commission to decide that they would need an international treaty dis dis dealing with international water courses. So that's the second multilateral treaty, in a way, dealing in an extensive manner with users, the law applicable to the users of international water courses. In 2003, the International Law Commission considered again the issue of international water law, but this time dealing with the law applicable to transboundary groundwater resources. 
It took less time, and as I say, the International Commission adopted the draft articles on the law of transboundary aquifers last summer in 2008. I think that it took less time because, in fact, the, the end result of this codification attempt is mostly a reflection of the principles as contained in the 97 Convention. So there was already an acceptance of those main principles in terms of water sharing and cooperation. I'm not going really to speak of the 1923 Convention because you have very few states which have become parties to this Convention. But if we look at these two universal instruments, the 97 Convention and the 2008 uh, draft articles, it's quite interesting to see that both instruments are non-binding. Why? Because the 97 Convention has not yet entered into force, and I don't foresee any entry, entry into force in the, in the close future. And uh, the draft articles, even though the special rapporteur is very much willing to get a convention on international aquifers, I suspect that states are going to be quite happy to keep these draft articles as draft articles, as uh, an instrument of reference. But this being said, I don't think that it diminished the value, the legal value of these exercises. And in fact, uh, both the, the, the 97 UN Water Courses Convention has become an instrument of reference, an important instrument of reference in diplomatic and also judicial proceedings. And I suspect that it would be the same with the 2008 draft articles on transboundary aquifers. So important instruments of reference, but from a formal viewpoint, they are non binding. But there are codifications on, of principles of international law, and that's their uh, value. Now, we have these instruments, and I'm saying that they're important codification uh, instruments and that they play an important role, and I'm going to look now at the interplay between these universal instruments, and more especially I'm going to look at the 97 Convention, and more specific instruments. What is interesting, if you look at the work of the International Law Commission, and especially at the reports of the special rapporteurs, it's quite fascinating to see that the, the International Law Commission has worked in an extensive manner on state practice at the regional and local level. Local level mean, meaning the basin level. What does it mean? It means that when they were codifying universal principles, when they were attempting to develop the law at the universal level, in fact, the International Commission and, more, and especially the Special Rapporteur, Mr. Schwebel and Mr. McCaffrey, have been very keen on granting their efforts to codify the, the law at the universal level in local realities, in treaty practice. And it shows that the universal principles have an important value in all regions of the world, and that, I think that this is something which is important and we can come back to. The other thing which is interesting when you look at the 97 Convention is that it is said expressly that it's a framework convention. It's a framework convention, and that is said in the fifth paragraph of the preamble of the convention. It is said the conviction that a framework convention will ensure the utilization, development, conservation, management, and protection of international water courses, and the protection of the optimal and sustainable utilization for present and future generations. What does it mean, a, a framework convention? It means that it's a basis, it's a reference for the development of more specific instruments. And we have similar examples in the field of international environmental law with the Climate Change Convention, 
for example. And then what is also interesting is that the convention affirms that the agreements which are going to be concluded at the basin level will apply and adjust universal norms to the characteristics and uses of a particular watercourse or part thereof. So there is also an admittance at the universal level that there are local characteristics which can't be developed at the universal level but which need to be developed at the basin level. And so the idea of the 97 convention is to be an instrument which is going to offer the guiding principles for negotiating more specific agreements at the regional and basin level. It's interesting to say, see that, in fact, the 97 Convention had played this, has played this role, for example, with the revised protocol on shared water courses in the Southern African Development Community. It's a protocol, it's a protocol which was adopted in August 2000, and it's quite interesting to see that when states were negotiating this protocol in 2000, they were very much looking at what the International Commission had done at the universal level. And the same can be said about instruments adopted at the level of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, uh, for example, with the Helsinki <coughs> Convention on the uses of international water courses, and I'll come back to that. What is interesting, and I'll come back to that too, is that the, the, the treaties which have been, the negotiation which has been emulated by negotiation taking place at the universal level has gone further and much further in some cases. And that's something which is interesting, that a framework, but the idea of also looking more in details at some, at some of the specificities of a water course. And for example, you can look at the 2003 Protocol of Sust for Sustainable Development of the Lake Victoria Basin, which is quite interesting with uh, the enunciation of the, all the principles with respect to environmental management of an international water course. If you look also at the Senegal River Water Charter, which was adopted in 2002, you will see that <coughs> the principle of sustainable development is uh, well uh, explained and there is also a reference to the human right to water. So it's interesting to see one, at least one international instrument referring to the human right to water. Another example which is also quite interesting is the 19, uh, 1995 Agreement on the Cooperation for the Sustainable Development of the Mekong River Basin. Uh, when you look at the drafting negotiations of this agreement adopted in 1995, you realize that it was very much inspired by the work of the International Commission. So when the states were negotiating uh, this agreement, they were also looking at what was going on at the universal level. But it's also interesting to see that uh, the characteristics of the Mekong Basin have been taken into account, and for example, uh, the sensitivity to the changes of the flow of the Mekong Basin. <coughs> and you have explicit uh, these provisions uh, with, uh, which refer to the need for cooperation for maintaining the flows of the mainstream of the Mekong. And you have also quite interesting procedures with respect to notification, prior notification, uh, and consultation in case of planned measures because of this sensitivity to the change of flow of the basin and because of this sensitivity uh, differing from one season to another one. So from universal to regional and local, you see that there is an emulation and in fact there is sort of a deepening of the content of international water law at the regional and basin level, but that 
the universal instruments have inspired this momentum. And this is why it's important also to be thinking about negotiating instruments at the universal level. They sort of develop the legal language with respect to water management. Now, the second part, looking at the regional and basin instruments and looking from the regional angle at what is international water law uh, these days. As I've said, it's important to be looking at what states are doing at the regional level and at the basin level because <coughs> it's a, we're, say, we're seeing signs of possible progressive development of law at the universal level. So it's indications of new trends, of emerging trends, which could be replicated at the universal level, or also which could be replicated in other regions of the world. So there is an important process of uh, emulation. And when you look at the content of these regional instruments and basin instruments, as, as I've said, environmental protection is an important element in terms of development of legal norms, as well as public participation. Public participation does not appear in the 97 convention, but it's, it has appeared as one of the important pillars for water management in the, at the regional level as well as at the basin level. The other, I think, important element in terms of uh, what can bring the regional instruments is uh, related to the creation of river commissions of joint bodies at the basin level. And I will come back uh, to this uh, feature. First point looking from the regional perspective. What I'd like to do is to look at this emulation between universal, the universal dimension and the regional dimension. And for doing that, I will take the uh, Helsinki Convention adopted under the aegis of the uh, European Commission, uh, the Economic Commission for Europe of the United Nations, adopted in 92. It's a framework convention. It's a framework convention which is applicable to the European region the European region being understood as the European region within the context of the United Nations. So it's a large European region. And it's interesting to see that it was negotiated at the end of the 90s and it was negotiated when at the same time the members of the International Commission were in the process of the first reading of the articles and the second reading of their articles. And when you look at the 92 convention, and at the 97 convention, you see that there are a lot of similarities, but there are also differences and characteristics for uh, the 97, 92 convention. Now, the reasons of the characteristics, because it's, it's a regional instrument which was adopted, negotiated by about 40, 50 states, so it's quite a large number of countries. So maybe you can consider that the smaller number of countries is one point to be taken into account. That could be. But I think it's also important to be taken into account that at the European level, understood in the context of uh, the United Nations, the water sharing issue, the water quantity issue is not really the most important issue. What is important in Europe is the issue of water quality and pollution abatement. And in this context, there is a lot of uh, importance which has been given to the issue of uh, preserving the water quality of the international water courses in the European context. It's important to have in mind, if you, you all know the 97 Convention, but you know that the provisions dealing with environmental protection are quite general, quite broadly defined, and there is not much on water quality. Now, what is also important when you look at the 92 
convention, the Helsinki Convention. The scope of application, it, it says that the convention covers any surface or ground waters which mark, cross, or are located on boundaries between two or more states. So it includes the international aquifers that are referred to by the draft articles of the International Law, Com uh, Law Commission. For the 97 convention, you know that <coughs> the scope uh, uh, of application is smaller. Already, I think it's quite broad, but it's smaller in, in terms of scope uh, in comparison to the 90 con 92 convention uh, because it deals with international water courses and with aquifers when they are related, directly related to the international water course in question. So that's an element of, of distinction. The other element of distinction, I've also already highlighted the importance of water quality. If you look at the principles, you're going to see that there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of provisions dealing with principles which should find application, such as the precautionary principle, which is explicitly mentioned, the polytopase principle in terms of liability and the use of economic instruments for managing an international water course. And also there is a reference to the notion of best available technology, which is also important. All these references are not mentioned in the 97 uh, convention. Another important feature of the European instrument, I mean the Helsinki Convention, is that it puts a lot of emphasis on public participation. Public participation meaning the populations living in the close area of an international water course, but also water associations and so on. And uh, this is something which is important if you look at the instruments developed under the aegis of the Economic Commission for Europe, the United Nations, you will see that public participation is an important principle in the context of uh, the European uh, legal system. You think, for example, of the Iris Convention on access to information and participation to, um, to the decision-making process. What is also interesting with the Helsinki Convention is that it has already given place to the adoption of two protocols, one dealing with the relationship between water and health, adopted in 1999, uh, and there, is also, there are also explicit references to issues of uh, human rights to water, so it's uh, this individual perspective which is there. There is also a protocol on civil liability and compensation for damage caused by the transboundary effects of industrial accidents, which has been adopted in 2003. And so that also it's for helping the victims of an accident in relation to an international water course to obtain reparation and compensation. Another feature, distinctive feature of the 92 Convention is this important role, the stress which is put on joint bodies. Uh, the the, the um, requirement for states to create joint commissions for managing a specific international water course. And in this context, I would like to link the 92 uh, Helsinki Convention to uh, uh, the EC Water Framework Directive, which was adopted in 2000, which is also an important instrument in terms of water management in Europe. And there too, in fact, the, uh, the, the 2000 Water Framework Directive is also requiring, asking states to create river basin districts. So it's important, the joint institutions are important pillars for a good or sound management of international water courses in terms of European practice. 
We should also note that the EC is a party to the Helsinki Convention, so it helps to ensure that there's mutual supportiveness between the Helsinki Convention and the Water Directive. Now, if we look at the uh, Helsinki Convention, what is interesting is that it's a European instrument, but the member states, maybe that they were so pleased with this instrument, that they decided that it should gain a universal scope. And in 2003, <coughs> the parties to the Helsinki Convention adopted an amendment which aims at extending the Convention's geographic scope. And uh, according to the terms of the amendment, even non-member states of the Economic Commission for Europe may adhere to the Convention upon approval by the meeting of the parties of the Helsinki Convention. And what is interesting with this amendment, in fact, is that the objective is to regroup as many states as possible, most notably those adjacent to the region covered by the, uh, European, the uh, Economic Commission uh, for Europe. So, a regional instrument which is willing to become a universal instrument in terms of management of international water courses. Now, it remains uncertain to see if this aspiration <coughs> Uh, is going to meet ac acceptance. So far, very few states have accepted this amendment. And uh, one thing maybe that we could ask ourselves is that, as I said, this regional instrument has a lot of characteristic and specificities. The question could be that, are these specificities and characteristics uh, going to prevent its quest for universality? Can it become really a universal instrument because of uh, its specificities, especially with respect to public participation, to joint commissions, and to environmental protection. A question that we can come back to later on in the discussion. What I've said about the Helsinki Convention could be said about the SADC protocol that I've mentioned, the protocol on shared water course systems in the Southern African Development Community. It's about the same process which has taken place, uh, emulation and then more characteristics, but this idea that they should be read together when they are interpreted. Now, we've looked at the relationship between universal and regional instruments. Now, we're going to be looking at relations between universal, regional, and basin agreements. And look at some of the elements of the dynamic between these three level instruments. I've mentioned the 97 Convention as a framework convention. I've mentioned the 92 Convention, the Helsinki Convention. It's also a framework convention. It's also intended to be a framework convention. And it's interesting to see that at the basin level, <coughs> the Helsinki Convention has led to the adoption of agreements such as the 1994 Convention on Cooperation for the Protection and Sustainable Use of the Danube River, the 99 Convention on the Protection of the Rhine and the 1994 Agreements Concerning the Protection of the Esco and the Meuse Rivers. So we have the universal instruments, we have the regional instrument, and now we have more specific instruments and they are adapt adjusting, adopting the instruments and specifying the principles negotiated both at the universal level and at the regional level. An interesting example in this respect is the 98 treaty between Portugal and Spain on the cooperation for the protection and sustainable use of the waters of the Luso-Spanish river basin. Uh, 
it's interesting to look at this instrument because this instrument refers both to the 97 Convention and to the 92 Convention. It refers to the 97 Convention. We know that there is an issue of scarcity of water in the uh, Iberian Peninsula. And uh, there is uh, the agreement, the 98 Agreement, guarantees stream flows between Spain and Portugal. So it's an issue of water quantity which is at stake. But at the same time, there are issues of pollution. And, uh, and so in this context, the 98 Convention between Spain and Portugal is also referring and reiterating the principles as enunciated in the 92 Convention. And water quality is an important issue in the 98 uh, Convention. Uh, it's the same with a specific, uh, there is a reference to a specific principle I have not yet mentioned, which, but which is becoming more and more important in terms of water management, which is the principle of environment impact assessment. And there is clarification about the content of this principle in the context of this agreement. So this is an example of transcription in more specific details. We can have a specific, there is a similar process of transcribing principles via regional and universal instruments into basin agreements in the context of Africa, in the southern part of Africa. Uh, I've mentioned the SADC protocol at the regional level. And now we can refer as examples of specific basin agreements. We can refer to the 2002 agreement, which was negotiated by Mozambique, South Africa, and Swaziland, uh, which adopted an agreement on cooperation, which is specifying uh, the management for, uh, the rules for two rivers, the Inkomati and the Maputo watercourses. In the context of these specific agreements, if you look at them, you will see that we can see the affiliation between the 97 Convention, the SADC Protocol of 2000, and these specific instruments. But in the same time, if you look more carefully at, this, at these specific instruments, you're going to realize that you can identify what are the worries of, these, of the riparian countries which have negotiated these specific agreements. And in the context of the uh, 2002 uh, agreement between Mozambique, South Africa and Swaziland, uh, the, uh, once more the principle of environment impact assessment is an important one with respect to planned measures. So there is a specification of the obligation to resort to environment impact assessment when there is an issue of planned measures on one of the, on the, uh, one of the two international watercourses. There is also a specification of the issue of human health in this context. So there, is, there are provisions dealing with health and the use of, the, there is a, an explicit relationship which is made between this uh, 2002 agreement and the issue of the protection of health. So we have seen that we can go uh, in details about this emulation process, this nurturing process. What I'd like to uh, also highlight is the issue of joint commissions institutional mechanisms. That may be an obsession of mine, but I do feel that it's an important way of managing in a sound manner an international water course. And there are a lot of water courses which are not yet well managed, well regulated, and which are missing a, an effective institutional mechanism with strong powers. If you look at the universal instruments, meaning the 97 Convention and the draft articles of 2008 on international aquifers, you will see that <coughs> the members of the International Commission and the states 
have been very timid, shy, in respect of the requirement of setting up creating joint commissions. In fact, it's just en passant, they are saying that it would be good to create joint bodies, but there is no obligation uh, which is formulated. That being said, when you look at the regional instruments, and for example, more especially at the instruments adopted at the regional level, in, meaning in Europe, you will see that the 92 Helsinki Convention and the EC Water Framework Directive are particularly forward-looking and comprehensive in their dealing with cooperations to institutional mechanisms. So you have regional instruments which are asking, requiring states to create joint bodies at the level of a specific water course. For those who are interested, if you look at the 92 uh, convention, you will see that there is also an enunciation of all the tasks and functions that joint bodies have to exercise for ensuring that there will be a sound management of the water course in question. If you look at the basin level, it's quite interesting to see that, to note that in fact, in most of the regions of the world, at the basin level, states have been willing to create joint institutional mechanisms. And it's often said that the oldest institutions are in fact river commissions, one can refer to the Rhine Commission and the European Commission for the Danube, which were respectively created in 1815 and 1856. But already it was felt that there was a need to have an institutional mechanism where riparian states could meet and discuss common issues with respect to the management and the protection of a specific international water course. Now, from an institutional perspective, as well as the development of the mandate of this uh, joint commissions, it's quite interesting to see that once these commissions have been established, there have been a tendency or practice by states, by riparian states, to give them more and more tasks and functions. So, in fact, there has been an acceptance at the basin level that these joint commissions are important tools for ensuring a sound management of a specific international water course. I'm not going to go in details but you can look at the Rhine Commission, which has gone through an enlargement of its functions. It's also interesting to look at the practice of African states. It's quite interesting to see that African states have been very much willing to entrust these commissions with more and more functions. Now the issue is the capacity and the financial means for ensuring all these functions, but there is a willingness at the local level to have sort of institutional third parties for ensuring some management of a specific water course. The issue of the, uh, when I speak of institutional commissions or joint bodies, I think it's important also to have in mind that they can play an important role with respect to dispute avoidance and dispute settlement. And uh, the practice has shown that in fact states have been willing to entrust these joint commissions with functions in relation to joint, to dispute prevention and dispute settlement. One can refer to the International Joint Commission established under the 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty between the United States and Canada, which has important functions and tasks in this respect. One can also refer to some of the commissions established in Latin America, for example, the Administrative Commission on the Rio de la Plata or the Administrative Commission on the Rio Uruguay. When you look at the statutes of this uh, applicable to these water courses, it's quite interesting to see that there is a specification of specific functions in terms of dispute settlement and dispute avoidance. 
And it's, why is it so important, I think, to entrust these commissions with such powers? Because it seems to me that with respect to water management, states are more willing to discuss it at the local level, at the basin level. And they like to discuss it. They have this, uh, there is also this practice that they prefer to have consultations and negotiations within a context uh, uh, which they know. And uh, so that's an important element to be taken into account. The other, I think, element which is also to be taken into account is that such mechanisms, if they are well run, they ensure trust, mutual respect, and the willingness to settle issues among the riparian states. So uh, although you have a number of commissions which have been entrusted with specific dispute settlement functions, I think that it's something to be thought about further for other commissions who don't yet have specific functions in terms of dispute avoidance. Uh, it's also a way of leveling the playing field among the, uh, the parties to a dispute because they are in a specific context, which is an institutional context where there is supposedly equality of parties. So those are the elements in terms of the development at the local level, and we can see that they were fed these developments by developments at the universal and regional level, but also this development at the local level can shed light on what could be done, what could be strengthened at the regional and universal level. Now, some words of uh, conclusion in terms of uh, putting these questions of interaction, uh, looking at them through another legal angle. In fact, when we're speaking of universal instruments as well as regional instruments, we're speaking of lex generalis, mostly. When we're speaking of basin instruments, we're speaking of lex specialis instruments. So we see that, in fact, we could use the words that are used often in international law for regulating or for articulating the relationships between all these instruments. But I, my plea is that I don't think that this principle, the principle lex specialis derogat lex generalis, finds application in the context of international water law. And it should not find application. It should not find application because in this context, as I said, we have to look at the developments of international water law from a systemic perspective. And it's a multi-level approach which has to be kept in mind. Meaning what? It means that all these instruments have to be read together. And uh, there is no issue of derogation from one to another. In a way, what the system has is, as it has been built by the states is that we have framework of references and from the general we go to the specifics. But the specifics should be understood and interpreted in the light of the universal principles as framed and developed in the context of the 97 Convention and the uh, 2008 draft articles on international water courses. What do I mean by that? I mean that there can't be any clinical isolation between the agreements. It's impossible to consider that you, have, you can have closed boxes where you can be, states are going to be able to negotiate whatever they want, derogating to other principles. And I'm not using notions that are often used in other areas of international law, such as imperative norm or intransgressible principles, because it's not an issue of this type of norms. It's an issue of looking at the development of international water law and looking at how it has been developed and understanding that, in fact, 
it's a nurturing process and that the systemic approach helps to understand what's what is going on at the basin, at the regional and at the universal level. That means that if Spain and Portugal, for example, have a problem, the agreement and interpretation of the agreement that I've mentioned will have to be looked and interpreted in the context of other principles of international law and more especially the ones developed in the context of the 1997 convention and the 92 Helsinki convention. The same for the Mekong agreement. So that's an element that I, I'd like to highlight. The other thing is that I have put a lot of emphasis on the fact that uh, uh, specific agreements can be more comprehensive, can be more extensive, and it's true. But we should also remember that there are a lot of international water courses which are not regulate, yet regulated by a, a specific framework, a specific legal agreement. And there are a lot of, as I say, often there are a lot of international water courses which are orphans. Orphans because they have not yet been regulated by a specific instrument. But they're not complete orphans because there is the 97 Convention. And I think it's important to keep in mind the importance of the 97 Convention because when there is an issue between two riparian states, the states have the means to refer to principles of international law, which can find application at the local level for resolving a specific dispute. And I've spoken a lot about, about international water courses, but I suspect that we're going to have more and more disputes in terms uh, in relation to international aquifers. And that's going to be the value added of the draft articles on international, water, uh, on international aquifers adopted by the International Commission. They're going to be instruments of reference for the European states for resolving their disputes when they don't have a specific instruments to be referred to. So, to conclude, the contemporary trends of the law applicable to water to in fresh waters are multi-level oriented and there is an emulation between the universal, regional and local levels. Is it a specificity of international water course or should water courses law or should we, can we think of other similar developments in other fields of international law? When preparing this lesson, and now I see one of the great specialists of this field, I was thinking that maybe the climate change convention or the climate change regime could be thought and framed in these terms. The universal agreement, maybe regional approaches and maybe more specific approaches with respect to the fight against uh, climate change. But I think it's an interesting process of emulation which could be used and referred to by, other, uh, by others in other areas of international law and politics. With that, I thank you very much for your attention.